So I think you guys all know where, what we've been up to the last, uh, this is going on eight weeks. We've been, we've been looking at uh, a study in the book of 1 Peter. We're, we're literally teaching through an entire book of the Bible. And um, for some people, um, maybe you've never even read an entire book of the Bible straight through. Hopefully you have. I encourage you to. But for, you'd be surprised at how many people haven't. Most of the... Most of the information they get about God it comes directly from some guy standing behind this pulpit. And, you know, in this place, we, 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 do, we encourage you to get into the Word of God, trust Holy Spirit, the true teacher, and allow Him to edify you, teach you, and lead you into truth. Amen? So hopefully, hopefully you've been going along with us in, in First Peter. Um, how many of you guys are actually quite surprised at how relevant 1 Peter is to the day that we are living in, the times that we're living in. It, it, it's, uh, it's very, very, very interesting and very revealing that, um, you know, as Solomon said, he said, there's nothing new under the sun, right? We just package it up, we put a new na- label on it, new name, but it's the same thing over and over again. What's so wonderful about the Word of God is that it's, it's not something that about what happened in the past. It's about what always happens. It's about what always happens. So, a little bit of context. We're, we're in 1 Peter. Um, he's writing a letter to the churches um, who are under the dominion of Rome. Rome is the superpower of its day. Um, and But but it was in the beginning stages of self-destructing. That doesn't sound familiar, does it? There was infighting in the, in the political realm. Um, there was division. There was political power grabs. And the culture was literally decaying. Uh, um, you know, it, actually, it talks about, in, in Peter, the fiery trials. Um, Rome nearly burned completely to the ground very soon after writing this, this letter. And, and some scholars believe in the book of Revelations where it talks about the beast having a mortal wound. They believe that that was, but it comes back to life. They believe that that was Rome burning to the ground and but being revived back, back to life again. Um, so this is what Peter was dealing with. He's dealing with almost the same type of environment that we as believers today find ourselves in. Christians were a minority group caught caught up in the middle of all this um, escalating pressure, and and there was an escalation of even persecution from the culture to Christians. Um, Literally, Nero blamed the Christians for that fire. He had to blame it on someone. Couldn't have been his incompetence of leadership. But he blamed it, and the the persecution just started. Nero actually would have um, state dinners, and they would pitch and tar Christians, line them up in his his gardens where he'd have these banquets, and light them on fire to light his parties. On top of the Colosseum, where where they throw women and children and men um, to face the gladiators or face the beasts and be torn apart, that's the type of that's the type of brutality that uh, Peter was living in. 
sometimes you feel like we're not too far away. Peter's, and where we are at in First Peter, um, unfortunately, you kind of, you kind of, kind of build on on what we've learned so far. But uh, Peter was is about to list two opposing cultures: the culture of heaven and the culture of hell. See, lots of people think that heaven and hell is somewhere where you go when you die. But the truth of the matter is, is that in life, heaven and hell come to you. You're either pulling hell up into your life, or you're allowing heaven to come down into your life. Jesus told us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if you ever question, what is God's will for the earth, right there Jesus' prayer tells you. He wants heaven to be manifest in the earth. And if heaven's going to be manifest in the earth, first it has to be manifest in our homes. First it has to be manifest in the church. First it has to be manifest in our spheres of influence if we want to see it manifest in the earth. And I believe with all my heart that we will see that one day. So we're going to jump back into 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, um, picking back up at verse 8. So let's read this. Peter says, finally, all of you, so he's talking to all of us, right? Not just the pastor. He's talking to all of us. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you, for, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. It's interesting that when we do the things the way God wants, instructs us to do, when we pull heaven down, it says that we obtain a blessing ourselves. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. It's interesting. If you ever wondered why God's not listening to, to you, maybe you need to ask yourself, am I acting like the devil, or, I'm tr or am I trying to act like Jesus? Right? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he uses the word finally. He starts off with the word finally. So he's tying this back to everything we taught in the last two, two, two to three weeks. Right? All, all he said, all of this is coming to a climax, to action. That we need to act on what he has said. And he goes and quotes Psalms 34. He quotes Psalms 34. It's an awesome psalm. I recommend that you go and read the whole psalm for yourself because that is the blessing of the Lord that the Lord wants to manifest in your life when you act like Jesus, when you act with kingdom culture. The secret to a happy life and healthy relationships is not complicated. 
Everything in this scripture we just read will give you a happy and healthy relationship, a happy life, or it will give you unhappy life. It will give you unhealthy relationship. You can choose from this passage of scripture what life you want. And we're going to unpackage all of this. It's not complicated. Life isn't complicated. Some people say, why is, why is my life like this? Why does my life suck? Why, why, does, why, why am I just, where's my, I, there's no joy, there's no happiness, all of this stuff. It's simple. It's right here. And, you can, and Peter's going to give us the recipe for heaven and hell. So a culture of hell. What does Peter say if you want a culture of hell in your life? You re- repay evil for evil. You guys you ever experienced this? See, he's talking about your actions here. This is talking about you're a counterpuncher. You punch me, I'm going to hit you back. You do something bad to me, I'm going to do something bad to you. Now, you know this happens in the world, but how about in your home? This is eye for an eye. This is tooth for a tooth. And pretty soon, everybody's blind, and they're on an applesauce diet. Right? I mean, do you see this in our culture? You see conflict, conflict, conflict. Does it feel a little bit like hell right now? How can you know if a a resolution is of the Lord or not? Let's say say you're having a high-volume disagreement with, with your spouse. And you come to the end of that disagreement, and you come to a resolution. How do you know if that resolution is from the Lord. It's because it's a win-win resolution. It's a win-win resolution. It's where one person is thinking of the best of the other person, and the other person is thinking the best of the other person. It's not a win-lose situation, which is right from the flesh. One just overpowers, one just takes over, and one person walks out the victor, and the other person is left on the floor the loser. And it definitely isn't a lose-lose situation where no one wins. That's straight from the pit of hell. Does, this, does it seem like anyone's winning in our culture right now? Does it seem like anybody's winning? To me, it seems like everyone, everyone's losing. How about in your home? Who's winning in your home? Who's winning with your kids? Who's winning with your spouse? Who's winning at work? Then there's reviling for reviling. This is slander. This is defamation. This is mocking another person. This is lying. This is destroying someone's reputation. These are your words. 
Evil for evil is your actions. Reviling for reviling is your words. This is called, you do something nasty for me, to me, you say something nasty about me, I'm going to say something nasty about you. In other words, this is social media. <laughs> right? And number three, it, kind of, it, leads, it leads to our tongue speaking evil and deceit. Lying, fraud, deceitfulness, craftiness of evil. We're talking about creating a culture of hell. And unfortunately, what Peter lists here, it just hits way too close to home. Many of the problems that we're seeing right now are happening because human because of the way human beings are treating one another. Can you agree that so, uh, so, <laughs> I can't, why is it how to pronounce this word escape? Civility. There we go. Can you agree that civility is dead in our culture? People are not civil with one another. Look at the way people treat each other at a fast food restaurant. You got a five dollar, well, maybe with inflation, ten dollar meal, and you get so mad that you you tear the whole joint up and throw your tray and jump the counter to beat up a fifteen year old that is making minimum wage. Civility is dead. What Peter is saying is that if that if that's the way the culture is out there. We have to check to make sure that culture is not in here. We have to make sure that culture is not in our relationship, that our cu that culture is not in our home, that our culture that culture is not in our hearts. We can't allow what's going on out there change us in here. He goes on to say that these are people that do evil against God. This is the mob mentality. Those that are aggressive those that pressure you to agree with them, you either ag you agree with us, you have to appease the mob, and in doing so, we fail to please the Lord. This is the world we live in. And if this is the world we live in, how does a Christian conduct ourselves so that we are not living in a precursor to hell, but we're pulling heaven down? that we're bringing the culture of heaven into the earth. So what's the culture of heaven? He talks about having unity of mind. Unity of mind. This does not mean that you agree on everything. I mean, look at your marriage. Look at the church. Look at an organization. There's lots of diversity of thought. There's lots of diversity of viewpoints. People don't agree on everything. Having harmony requires a commitment to compassion and love that exceeds the difference of opinion. Putting others first means hearing what they say and feeling what they feel. It's choosing to love and support them even if you don't love and support their viewpoints. How many of you are married? 
you agree on everything that your spouse agrees on? Believe it or not, me and Amanda don't. So pray for us, okay? We don't agree on everything. See, we think unity means you have to agree on everything. Do you agree? Do you and your children agree on everything? No way. They'd, they'd eat constant ho-hos and ding-dongs and, and candy and Mountain Dew and, and stay up until 4 in the morning if, if you agreed on everything. I mean, if you meet a group of people and they agree on everything, run. You're in a cult. They're making Kool-Aid in the back, right? Some pastors and some leaders, insecure pastors, insecure leaders, insecure bosses and employers, they almost make it mandatory that you believe everything that they believe. Why? Because they're, they're insecure. Believe it or not, there are things that me and Pastor Tom disagree on. On the Bible. And I agree with them, but then we both be wrong. <laughs> but we don't break fellowship. We work together. We, 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 we love each other. Why? Because our disagreements are secondary. Our relationship in one another is primary. You can have unity of mind without totally agreeing on everything. Unity of mind comes around a few things. First of all, the relationship matters more than the issue. The relationship matters more than the issue. Again, what does social media look like? What does is, what is, what is your, your, your squabbles in your home look like? These issues, these, these issues that are so non-important all of a sudden get elevated above the relationship. This is also prevalent in churches. People love the church until they disagree with something. And then they throw away the whole relationship because of a little issue that meant more to them than the people. This happens in marriages where the issues of life become more important than the marriage and the relationship. And they just depart from the marriage. They're more concerned about the issues. They're more um, concerned about the issues than getting their, and trying to get their uh, spouse to conform to their will than the relationship itself. See, there are open-hand issues and closed-hand issues. There's open-hand issues and closed-hand issues, right? So a closed-hand issue is an issue that is very important. The Bible is true, Jesus is God, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life only comes through Jesus Christ. Those are all closed-hand issues, right? If we can agree on those issues, we can come together in unity of mind, right? Then there's open-hand issues. These are secondary issues, like your political party, where where you are at on certain social issues, right? Um, when it comes to religion, um, if you dunk or you sprinkle, 
You know, you could be the thief on the cross that didn't get dunked or sprinkled. If you're pre-trib, post-trib, no-trib. I mean, there, there are huge splits over things that people cannot, you cannot even, you cannot be 100% guaranteed that you're right. And it's not that these issues are unimportant, but they're not so important that we act like the devil when, and we pull hell up into our life and into our churches when someone disagrees with us, when, when we don't have everyone acknowledging how wonderful we are. I have a news for you. If, if a person agrees with you on closed-hand issues and not, not on open-hand issues, you are still going to be living with them forever in eternity. So we might as well get used to each other down here, right? I mean, there's literally people that, I mean, you got two camps, you got, and, and I land right in the middle of it. You got the Ar Arminianism, and you got the uh, Calvinists, right? This Calvinist is all God sovereign. He does nothing happens in life unless God does it, right? So, um, abortion's God's fault. Genocide's God's fault. If you go to heaven or hell, it's God's fault. You got th this camp over here, and then you got the Arminians, where God takes you so far, but then it's up to you to maintain your salvation, right? You got to repent. You got to do these things and repent means take every single sin that you ever committed and get it under the under the blood they even go so extreme to where if you die and you have unrepented sin in your life you go straight to hell so what did jesus accomplish right i'm right in the middle but th there there are some on this camp over here where you tell someone they got born again and, and you or you let them into sinner's prayer they accepted jesus and they get mad because you are portraying that they had to do something to get saved. They're mad about people getting saved. That's how ridiculous religion is. It's ridiculous. Let's focus on Jesus. Let's, find, let's put our faith and trust in Jesus. Let, let's, let's try to be like Jesus. How, how about that? Then he talks about sympathy. Man, you're good at this, Matt. Sympathy simply means I want to understand you so I can help you. I want to understand you so I can help you. We have a lack of civility in our culture because we have a lack of sympathy. The world would be such a greater place if, if we could look at things from other people's perspective. This does not mean that you agree with their perspective. You understand that? It has nothing to do with agreeing with, with people's, people's interpretation of, of God or, or the world or themselves, their identity, all these things. It's not about agreeing with them, but it's looking at the person as a child of God that was created in the image of God, that Jesus Christ died for, looking at them and loving them and trying to understand them through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, this is completely void in our culture. In our culture, we just hammer people. And if, we do, if, if, if they don't agree with us, we just continue hammering them. Why? Because they have no value for us. We can't use them. Most people have, their, have the views they have because of the experiences in their life. Truthfully, most people believe what you believe because of your experiences, not because you sat down and rationally thought out things. Not, not because you sat down and studied things out. Do you understand that? And most of our experiences that form the way that we think usually happens through hurt. It usually happens through hurt. And when, you try, and when you're trying to understand someone, you have to understand not where they got that viewpoint from. That's what sympathy does. They, it finds out why do you have this viewpoint that you have? How did you come to this conclusion? And most of the times you find out it happened from some past hurt in their life. It's an explanation for why the world is like hell. They're trying to explain their situation. And we have the answer. To, not, 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 for, not only for why the, earth, the world is like hell, but how we get out of hell. It takes no sympathy to win an argument. It takes a whole lot of sympathy to win a person. And most of us, if we're honest, just don't have time for that. Then he goes on to say brotherly love. Brotherly love means caring for people in the body of Christ rather than using them. Brotherly love. Have, have any of you ever had a conflict with your sibling? If you have a brother or sister and you had a conflict with them, right? What's interesting about those conflicts is that the relationship is more important than the conflict. Love is, I'm going to seek to do what is in your best interest. That's what love is. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Love is seeking to do what's best for another person's interest. The Bible says God is love. It says that God so loved the world that he did what? He did something that was in our best interest. He sent his son to save us so that we would not be condemned, but that we would be saved, right? Love is not, it, it, love is not like, love is not like, like. <laughs> love and like are different. You understand this? But he doesn't tell us to like one another. He doesn't tell us to like one another. Is it possible to like everyone? No. Liking someone is dependent on them, right? I don't like you. Why don't you like me? Because you're you. <laughs> right? You don't have to like everyone. But you do have to love them. See, love is not based upon them. Love is based upon God. God loves us, 
God gives us his love so that we can give his love to others. See, Amanda and I, believe it or not, we love each other, but we also really like each other. Right? I like Amanda a whole bunch. But there are even times, believe it or not, in our relationship that Amanda might not like me too much. Right? She might not like me too much. But she still loves me. See, and the love, the love keeps our relationship together. Even when she don't like me. You can always love someone even if you don't like someone. And how do we know this? Who did Jesus say that we were to love? Our enemies. Love your enemies. How many of you, how many of you like your enemies? You don't like your enemies, right? I like the way that you just, you just persecute me and, and torment me and make my life miserable. No, we don't like our enemies, but Jesus says that we're able through the power of God, through the love of God that dwells within us to love others, to want the best for them. Liking someone is an emotional response. Loving someone is a willful response of your born-again spirit. And then he talks about if you want the culture of hell in your life, or culture of heaven in your life, that we are to have a tender heart. A tender heart. The heart is the core of who you are. I believe that the heart is the combination of your spirit and your soul. We live in a world that focuses on words and deeds. And, and, and all, all need to watch our words and deeds. But the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that if our hearts are right, it would correct everything else in our life. See, religion even, even teaches you on this. They say, do this, this, and this, and, you're, and, and you'll be like Christ. The Gospels say that I, when you are born again, the Holy Spirit comes into you, and I will give you a new heart, a new want to. I will transform you. I will show you the way. One is based on do good, get good. Do bad, get beat. And one is based on Jesus did good. Now that's my identity, and I rest in his righteousness and his holiness, and I act accordingly. One's trying to achieve, one's resting in the achievement. Parents want their kids' behaviors to change, right? So we try to change their, we try to change their actions. We try to change their, the way that they speak and the, the way that they talk. But the truth of the matter is, you need to change their hearts. You have to change their hearts. From the abundance of the heart, the what? Mouth speaks. So you can tell what's in someone's heart by what they say. And when you hear a lot of people talk, you should feel, feel very, very sad for them. Because their heart is a very sad place. A very dark place. A very broken place. 
It also says that guard your heart because, when we, because it's the wellspring of life. So your whole life is dependent on the condition of your heart. You want to change your life? Change your heart. And Jesus is awesome. He's a great surgeon. He does heart transplants all the time. Right? What's the opposite of a tender heart? A hard heart, right? We are told that we actually have jurisdiction over our heart. Right? You're supposed to guard your heart. Right? You're supposed to watch what goes into your eyes and your ears and all, all of those things. Right? He says we're supposed to have jurisdiction over our hearts. We can choose. You can choose to have a broken heart. You can choose to have a hard heart. You can choose to have a bitter heart. But if we are ever going to have a culture of heaven in our relationship, we need to have a tender heart. A tender heart. He says we have to be humble of mind. If you want the culture of heaven, you have to have the humble, a humble mind. I may not agree with you, but I'm willing to listen to you. Right? I'll consider what you're saying, and I'm willing to learn. Even if you learn what not to do, what not to believe. Right? And it doesn't mean that in the end I'm going to agree with you, but I've heard you, I considered you, and I respect you. Wouldn't that be awesome if our world was like this? Wouldn't that be awesome if our homes were like this? A humble mind is one that considers the truth that, you know what? I might not be right. I might not be right. You don't understand how much of my messages go into making sure I want to be as right as possible. Knowing that there's times that I might not be right. And I'm humble enough to say that there are things that I preached 12 years ago that I would not preach today. Because I was wrong. Luckily, it wasn't a closed hand. Item. It was an open hand item. A humble mind is one that considers the truth and considers the truth that you might not have the truth completely. We do not have a culture that has a humble mind. We need, we need as believers to practice humility of mind. Number six, he says that we need to endure evil deeds and reviling words. That's always fun, isn't it? Our flesh really likes when people are evil, do evil deeds to us and do reviling words to us and enduring that. When some, someone does evil to you, you do not return evil. When someone reviles you, you don't say anything back to, to them. I mean, we've seen ourselves in our marriages what it looks like to return evil for evil and reviling for reviling. How'd that work for you? Did that, did that pull heaven up or allow, he, he, or did it pull, allow heaven to come down or pull he, hell up? 
pulls hell up into our relationship? What does that look like in a parental um, relationship? What does that look like in the body of Christ? Then he says, to do good and bless others. How do you know if you've forgiven someone? How do you know if if you're not holding evil in your heart towards someone? You're able to bless them. You're able to bless them. How do you know if you're you're loving someone? You're able to bless them. If God told you to bless someone, and let's just say, you say, okay, God, I'll bless someone, and then all of a sudden someone pops in your mind, and you say, except them. Anybody but them. That's the person that you need to bless. Because you have evil in your heart towards them. It says that if you want to see the blessings of heaven, you need to do good and bless others. You remove, when you bless others, you remove yourself from the center of the universe when you bless another person. Blessing someone is giving them something at your expense. Sometimes blessing someone is saying something good about them when you could say something bad about them. Sometimes blessing people is is choosing not to say anything at all. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to say anything. I'm blessing you. <laughs> Let me ask you, who, who does this remind who does this remind you of? Unity of mind, filled with sympathy, filled with brotherly love, tender-hearted, humble-minded, enduring evil and reviling, doing good and blessing others. Who does that remind you of? Yes, Jesus. It's the character of Jesus. And we, as the children of God, as believers, as followers of Jesus, this should be our character also. And God says when this is your character, he'll take care of blessing you. And you need to start with those that are closest in your circle. You need to start with your wife. You need to start with your children. You need to start in the workplace. Before we think we're going to go out and do it at the mob, with the mob, at the parades, at the craziness, and the evil that's happening in our world, we've got to be able to do it at home. We've got to be able to do it in the church. Right? Sometimes I think the, the, the body of Christ just thinks the pastor has to do this stuff. No, I'm here to tell you what we've got to do. We've got to start in our circle. And as we, as, as God blesses us in our circle, our circle enlarges and enlarges. He says, for to this you were called. This is, what, this is the reason why God called you, to live like this, that you may t- obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life, see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his, his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do 
evil. He talks about five things God promises to do if we war against hell's culture and pursue, pursue the culture of heaven. He says he'll help us to love life. How many of you are loving life right now? If you're not loving life, start doing what Peter calls us to do. He literally says that in despite of everything that's happened in the world, you in your home, you in your workplace, you, us in our church, church family, we can be loving life. We can have the things that are happening out there not affect what's happening in here. He says, see good days. How many of you would just like to have one good day? But he, he promises that you'll see good days, multiple good days, great days, if we just act like Jesus. He says that we'll enjoy peace because we're pursuing the Prince of Peace. Right? How many want some peace in their life? How many don't want to be tormented by the news? Don't want to be tormented about the, 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 the latest outrage? And I'm not saying that those outrages, they're, that they're not important, but they're not the most important thing. Your sanity and Jesus as Lord of your life is the most important thing. He says that God will answer our prayers. How many need a prayer answered? How many are praying for the, the, the situation that we see our culture in, in our world in, in our government in? We need some prayers answered. Maybe the church needs to start looking like Jesus. And then he promises that he'll deal with the evildoers. He'll deal with the evildoers. When you allow God to be God and you realize that you're not God and there's nothing you can do to change what's happening besides trust and obey. He says, he'll deal with evildoers. But Dad, how can I be confident that he'll do it? Who is Peter writing to? Rome, the superpower that tried to crush Christianity, tried to destroy Christianity imprisoned, murdered, and killed thousands of Christians. Who's no longer a superpower? Rome. Who's larger, stronger, and more influent throughout the world than ever before? The Church of Jesus Christ. God says that he will deal with evildoers. Do you trust God? Then he goes on. I'll hurry, guys. I promise I'll be short. Verse 13, he goes on to say, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Isn't that great? He says, Have no fear of them, nor trouble. Be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for your hope that is in you. That word defense is, we get the word uh, apologetics from, and what this is, 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 is meaning. When you're living the way that God called you to, when people see that you have the culture of heaven in your life, just be ready to tell them why you have what you have. 
because of Jesus, right? He, go, he, goes, on to, he goes on to say, um, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be the will, God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, two ways that Christians get in trouble. You know, we, we kicked off this, this um, series talking about how you were born to be a, a rebel. You're either, you're, you have no choice. You're a rebel. You're either going to um, rebel against God or you're going to re- rebel against the culture and the kingdom of hell. Right? So you're a rebel. Another thing is you're a troublemaker. You have no choice in the matter. You're going to get in trouble. You are going to get in trouble. There's two ways that you're going to get in trouble. Either you're going to get in trouble for, for what is wrong, and that gets you in trouble with God, or you're going to get in trouble for doing what is right, and that gets you in trouble with the world, but not with God. The question is, is not whether you will get in trouble. The question is, is who you will get in trouble with and what you will get in trouble for. Two responses when you get in trouble. The first response is to fear man. And we can, when you get in trouble with the world, what they, what they do is they use fear to control your heart. We live, in a, we live in a culture that uses fear to control you all the time. Another response is when you get in trouble, I'm going to honor Christ in my heart, it says where Jesus has first place in our hearts, and we choose to either fear them or honor him. When you put Jesus first, it makes you courageous. Jesus will make you courageous. When you put the fear of man first, it will make you a compromising coward. And we're seeing that in the church all over. Men and women that lead behind the pulpit they are nothing more than compromising cowards. But I love them. Peter experienced both of these, didn't he? Peter experienced the fear of man. No, I never knew him. And then starts cursing. But later in his life, they said, renounce Jesus or die will crucify you. And Peter says, I will not renounce, and I am unworthy to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. He honored Jesus in his heart. So there might be times in your life where you fail. You know, you allowed the world to cause you to act like you know you shouldn't have act. Or maybe even deny the Lord. But Peter gives us hope that Jesus never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And he wants to make you courageous in the midst of a perverse generation. And then he closes with um, verse 18. For Christ, he brings everything. Don't you love Peter? He always does this. He always brings it back to Christ. He always points to Jesus. 
And he says, for Christ also suffered once for, for sins. Whose sins did he suffer for? Mine. Yours. You understand this? We once were the enemies of God. And God chose to love us. He chose to suffer by our hands. He says, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. There's a lot to unpack here. We're going to do it real quick. He goes on, verse 21. Baptism, which, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subject to him. Jesus is the answer. He, he starts pointing to Jesus. And the Christians need to stay on mission. We can get so distracted by what's going on in the world. Jesus is the mission. Jesus is the message. Right? And, you, and your message is offensive. But the messenger does not have to be offensive. Why is the message of the cross of, Je of, of Jesus offensive? Because it says that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, that you're not God, and there is a God, and you will be held accountable to that God, right? And you need to humble yourself. Oh, that's offensive. That you can't save yourself. Your good works amount to, the, as the Apostle Paul says, to a dunghill. We like to take our dung and frame it and put it on the wall. All of our achievements. That's offensive to the, to, the, to the carnal mind. And he points this, but the message is offensive, but we as the messengers don't have to be offensive. And, and Peter tells that Jesus Christ suffered for our sins, yours and mine. Jesus Christ is righteous. Everyone else is unrighteous apart from him. Jesus Christ is God who came to be man to bring men to God. Jesus Christ's body died on the cross and it looked like defeat, but Jesus Christ's spirit endures the cross in victory. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to conquer hell and open heaven. Jesus Christ rules over everyone and everything right now from a heavenly throne. And baptism is how Christians make their private faith public. Jesus is the answer. People want to talk about race. Great, let's talk about race. Because we talk about Jesus. Because it doesn't matter what color you are, you need Jesus. Right? Let's talk, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about politics. Great! Let's talk about Jesus. Because it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right, you both need Jesus. Right? Let's talk about the economy. Great! Let's talk about Jesus. Because it doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, you need Jesus. Let's talk about gender. It doesn't matter if you're female or male. We need to talk about Jesus. It doesn't matter if you, if, if you are in dysphoria, if, you, if, if you're broken, if, if, if um, you're being oppressed by demons. If, 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 it, it doesn't matter. Let's talk about Jesus because we all need Jesus, 
right? The message of Jesus matters most. In a world filled with problems, Jesus is the answer. Your Sunday school teacher was correct. Jesus is always the answer, right? Then Peter goes on to talk about the story of Noah. And that's and, and, and what he's pointing out, if God can save Noah and his family, he can find a way to save us. Amen? God waited. He watched sinners. You know, you had the fall of Adam. And for 1,600 years, don't tell me God's not patient. 1,600 years plus, he, uh, um, from Adam to Noah, God watched humanity. And what he found out about humanity is that in their hearts, apart from him, is nothing but evil. All their thoughts, all their actions was constantly evil all the time. And God saved Noah. It literally says that Noah found favor in the Lord's eyes. That word favor found in that in Genesis there is the, is the Hebrew word for grace. So it literally means that Noah found grace in God's eyes. Noah found the grace of God. I want you to think about that. Everyone was evil. God says, I'm going to love that guy. And he gave him grace. See, we like to think that Noah was some righteous person and all this, that he did something to find God's grace. No, grace is free. It's always free. And God came to Noah like he did Abraham. Why? So he could continue keeping a remnant so that the world might be saved through Jesus Christ. And he found grace, the grace of God. And he said that in 120 years, I will judge the world of sin. I'm going to flood the earth. God told Noah and his family to build an ark. The ark was 1.4 million cubic feet. It was shaped like a modern-day battleship. It was big enough to hold 522 modern-day railroad cars in it. Noah built a boat and re, uh, re, uh, preached repentance for 120 years. It says that Noah was, after he found favor, the favor of God, he, pre, he was a preacher of righteousness, it says, while everyone mocked him, right? He was in the desert, and many commentators believe that it had never rained on the earth at this time. I could really go into this. You know, it talks about the, the firmament um, around the earth was, was water, and the, water, the firmament broke and came down. It was almost, if you think about this, it explains a lot. There was like a filter of water around the earth, creating like a greenhouse. So the whole earth at that time was, was like um, tropical climate. Everything grew big. The oxygen levels are big. People lived longer. All these, all of the, all of these things, and it, and and they didn't have seasons. That all happened after the flood. When that water came down from above, it says that the that the, the earth was broken up from underneath, and water shot up from underneath. And you know where the oldest rock on Earth was ever found? This will get you. Look it up on the moon. How to get to the moon? When all that water shot up, it was so powerful, it shot the rocks into outer space and landed on the moon. You can you can Google it. The oldest rock from the earth is on the moon. 
was found on the moon. And so they don't believe that they, they, so many, it hadn't rained. So here's Noah building a boat for a flood when it's never rained. Talk about faith and believing and trusting God. Um, they, didn't, they, they didn't believe, and at, at Noah's time, they didn't believe that there was going to be a judge of water, judgment of water, right? The same way that we don't believe that one day this earth will be judged by fire. But one day, something fell from the sky. The water started coming down from the sky. And it says that God shut up. He shut the door. He shut up Noah in the ark. And all those that mocked him, all those that did not believe him, all of a sudden they started hearing. But it was too late. And Noah, Noah and his family, they trusted God. And they invited others to trust God. And what Peter is saying here, that Noah, that Jesus is our ark. That we need to be found in him. Do you know that word ark? Literally means in the Hebrew, coffin. When they took... They took uh, um, Jacob out of out of Egypt. They carried him in a coffin. It's the same word translated ark. Do you know that the Ten Commandments were in a what? Ark, coffin. We died in Christ so that we might live again. And in closing, I just want to say this. We need more husbands and fathers to lead their families. We need more husbands and fathers to lead their families through the storms of life. We need more husbands and fathers to lead their wives and children through the culture of hell that we are experiencing. We need more husbands and fathers to lead, just like Noah, in the middle of mocking, he faced persecution. He did the hard work. He, he brought his family into the ark. Was Noah perfect? No. He wasn't even close to being perfect. But what he did, he did lead his family to his best of his ability. And in this day and in this hour, we need men to rise up and lead. Just like Jesus, it, the ultimate leader, you need to lead in your home. You need to lead with your spouse. You need to lead with your children. You need to lead by example. The worst thing you can ever do for your children is be a hypocrite at home. Again, I'm not saying that you're going to do everything perfect, but if you apply the character of Jesus when you don't do things perfect, you get down on your knees and say, Son, daughter, I'm sorry. I screwed up. Honey, I apologize for being such a jerk. You mean so much more to me. And you keep it arguing. You create the culture of heaven in your life. And there is great blessing in that. Amen? Amen.
So I lied to you. I won't lie. But I don't care. I enjoyed it. Let's pray, and then we're just going to close in worship. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you that you have given us your eternal word that is steadfast and true. Give us the courage. Give us the ability. Give us the gumption through the Holy Spirit to desire the culture of heaven and shun the culture of hell. Jesus Christ, you are our example. And through the Holy Spirit, and through our resurrected spirit, through our new heart, that you have turned from a stony heart to a heart of flesh. Empower us. Empower us to live in our day. Empower us to live in this hour. Empower us to serve our families. Empower us to be the men and the women of God that the world so desperately needs to see a counterculture to a culture that is broken, hurting, and dying. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by your grace this will be so. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.